It's a very interesting time of the year, this week and this last Sunday of the year in particular. We are kind of in a no man's land, so to speak. We we haven't quite finished with the year and the new year hasn't yet quite started but we feel like there's a there's a fresh of newness at the same time uh, the stale of the old is, is still very much around us and we uh, we could sniff out the stench of what's passed this year not unlike any one of you here I have had failures this year, I have had discouragements, I've had disappointments this year. Some things that I had hoped to see have not seen the light of day, so to speak. And uh, so there has been disappointments, there has been uh, discouragements, sense of failure. And that's what I mean about, about being, you know, spending time this last week of the year. You're kind of a straddled between two worlds, the world that has just gone on, uh, it's about to finish, and the world that is coming. So there's a sense of hope in the air, uh, that good old phrase, hope springs eternal. How true. Hope springs eternal. It's always a sense that there must be something around the corner. Like Vinay, I, I, I pray almost every single day that the time will come very soon when we will be able to worship our God again in the mornings and I want to work this year concertedly for that together with the building committee Uh, would be great if before the month of April we could be back to morning service and I'd I'd certainly like to see that happen and we're working towards that and I pray that you are praying for that with us so this is not quite the first Sunday of the year but uh, I'm going to preach a new year message uh, to us all this 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 day. Uh, shall we then turn to Proverbs chapter four? Proverbs chapter four. I'd like to read from verse ten. Proverbs four. We'll pick up from verse ten and move right to the end of the chapter. Proverbs 4, verse 10, Listen, my son, accept what I say, and the years of your life will be many. I guide you in the way of wisdom and lead you along straight paths. When you walk, your steps will not be hampered. When you run, you will not stumble. Hold on to instruction. Do not let it go. Guard it well, for it is your life. Do not set foot on the path of the wicked or walk in the way of evil men. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn from it and, and go on your way. For they, cannot, for they cannot sleep till they do evil. They are robbed of slumber till they make every, someone fall. They eat the bread of wickedness. They drink the wine of violence. The path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn shining ever brighter till the full light of day. But the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. My son, 
Pay attention to what I say. Listen closely to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them, and health to the men to a man's whole body. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Put away perversity from perversity from your mouth. Keep corrupt talk far from your lips. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Make level paths for your feet. And take only ways that are firm. Do not swerve to the right or the left. Keep your foot from evil. This is the word of God. May him be praised. Shall, shall we seek the Lord's wisdom as we, as we start? Lord, we thank you that we have never been left to our own devices. We have never been left without a guide. Your word is a sure light, a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. And so, Father, we pray that you will illumine your words for us this day. We have traveled a long, arduous path, this just year that is about to come to an end. It has been a difficult year for many of us and yet it has also been a year of joy and gladness because you've walked with us and by your grace we with you. But Father, we look at the prospect of a year ahead of us and we dare not venture one single step without you going before us. So Lord, we ask that you will speak this word to us, prepare our hearts that we may Take firm steps for the year to come. We are needy. We are helpless without you. We have no wisdom of our own. We lack understanding. In you is full understanding. In your word there is life. The flower fades, the grass withers. But your word abides for all time, to all eternity. So Lord, please, teach us, illumine us from your word, we ask. Open our eyes, open our hearts, we pray, that we may see wondrous things from out of your word. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. On the twenty ninth of on the twenty ninth of May nineteen eighty seven, a nineteen year old West German computer analyst landed his single engine Cessna right into Moscow's Red Square. He stepped out of the plane, he smiled at the stunned crowd, and he coolly began signing autographs. His name Matthias Rust from Hamburg. He had navigated this little Cessna 172 all the way from Helsinki to Moscow in an unauthorized flight through over 400 miles of what was the world's most heavily guarded airspace. From time to time, his little plane was shadowed by Soviet fighter planes, but he flew on, unchallenged, unintercepted, 
unscathed until finally at about 7.30 in the evening after a 16-hour long flight people strolling through the cobbled plaza looked up to see that little Cessna hovered over Lenin's tomb barely cleared the red brick walls of the Kremlin touched down gently and taxied to a few feet of the walls of the Kremlin just behind St. Basil's Cathedral. In the days that followed there were more than just red faces amongst the military over this. The 75-year-old defense minister Sergei Sokolov was sacked the very next day by Mikhail Gorbachev and this brave little teenager from Helsinki was sentenced to four years of hard labor at the camps. But the fact remains that the iron heart of world communism had been turned into a landing strip for this teenage amateur pilot. Matthias Rast has penetrated the impenetrable and it took only a 19-year-old lad to put a hole through one of the greatest myths of this place and it is, that is the myth of invincibility. But what makes this story for me so ironical is that this little plane landed on the day that the Soviets were celebrating Border Guards Day. See, on Border Guards Day, they failed to guard the borders. When I write a story like that, I think of some things in my own life that needed guarding. But sometimes I have failed to guard them. And above all things, I think of the vulnerability of my own heart. I may assume that I'm safe. I may assume that I will never fall. But I've, if I do not guard my heart, then the day might come when Satan might just land his little Cessna inconspicuously in the landing strip of my heart. The Word of God says, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fail. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. So what I want to do this evening, this afternoon, as we face the new year ahead of us, is to think of God's call on you and I to guard our heart. First, let me show you how wise God's Word is. If you're open on that passage that we've just read, Proverbs 4, if you, put, if you would put your finger there, look at verse 24. Keep your mouth free from perversity. Keep corrupt talk far from your lips. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. And then 26, give careful thought to the paths for your feet. And be steadfast in all your ways. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Keep your foot from evil. You know, people who have fallen morally have always described the lack of focus in their inner life. They've become tired. They've become tired from family squabbles. They've become tired from work. And what sometimes starts as a, as a very casual glance 
at someone whom you shouldn't be taking a second look at would in seven months time turn out to be a very tragic story for your life and the word of God has even got a warning for this verse 25 let your eyes look straight ahead fix your gaze directly before you and look at verse 26 give careful thought to the paths for your feet and be steadfast in all your ways do not turn to the right nor to the left keep your foot from evil and people who have fallen morally have always told us that there was a time when they took a detour they knew they shouldn't have but they took it anyway and that little detour has led them down a very different different path so for most people who have fallen morally yes it was their eyes yes it was their mouth yes it was their feet but more than anything else finally ultimately it has always been their heart they didn't guard their heart now this text assumes that there will be stuff in your life that you will guard and it's true there are things we will guard you'll guard your loved ones your children your grandchildren your property your bank balance your health your life we guard what is precious to us but look at verse 23 above all else guard your heart so the Bible assumes that we will guard our children, we'll guard our wives, our husbands, we'll guard our family, our bank balance, our health. And then it goes on to say, above all else, guard your heart. It is the, it, it is the heart. You have to keep guard over your heart. You have to set a watch. You have to post a sentinel over your heart. See, protecting your heart is of the highest priority because grave consequences will come to you if you do not guard your heart so the text says above all else the Hebrew text actually says keep your heart above all guarding literally it means above all guarding I should guard my heart I know it sounds like a mouthful but above all guarding you should be guarding your heart uh, in the original language it literally reads above all keeping keep your heart above all else that you might value value your heart enough to post a guard over it the new American version says it better watch over your heart with all diligence for from it flow the springs of life but why the heart why guard the heart above everything else in Hebrew thinking the heart can mean a number of things three things actually Firstly, in Hebrew thinking, the heart stands for a person's thought life. It's a seat of your rationality. That's why Proverbs 23 says, as a man thinks in his heart. Now you think, oh, it's very strange. We don't think with our hearts. We think with, we think with our mind. But the word of God says, as a, man, as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. Secondly, to the Hebrew people, the heart is also the seat of your emotions the place where you feel and so Proverbs 15:5 says all the days of the afflicted are bad but a cheerful heart has a continual feast because the heart can feel it can feel cheerful 
And I like 1530 very much of Proverbs. Bright eyes gladden the heart. Good news put fat on the bones. Isn't that lovely? So the heart is a place where you feel, where you react, where you sense things, where you feel deeply about things in Hebrew thinking. So in Hebrew thinking, the heart is where you think, the heart is where you feel, but there is a third meaning to the word heart in Hebrew thinking. The heart is also the seat of your will, of your volition. So when you say, I will do that, it comes from the heart. Proverbs 11.20, the Lord detests those whose hearts are perverse, who will perverse things, so to speak. So where the Bible is concerned, the heart is a composite term. It is the center of the mind, of the emotion, of the will. So when Proverbs 3.5 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, he's telling us, to trust the Lord with our mind, with our emotions, and with our will. And so guarding your heart with all diligence means to guard where the outer faculties are concerned, your mouth, your feet, your eyes, but where the inner faculties are concerned, you have to guard your heart, guard your mind, guard your emotions, and guard your will. Now with all that explained, I want to make three points really in my sermon this afternoon. First of all, what does it mean to guard your heart with all vigilance? When the text says you have to guard your heart, it's making a huge implication. It's saying that your heart is not evil. Now at this point, all people who are of the reformed persuasion in their theology would have their hackles up their back. <laughs> I'll say that again. When the text says that we are to guard our hearts, the text is implying that there is a certain measure of goodness in the human heart. But most reformed people would say, no, no, no. A total depravity means that we are we're totally depraved through and through. And, and people like that would perhaps at this point in my sermon say, what about Jeremiah? Did did he not tell us that the heart is deceitful, deceitfully evil, desperately sick? Who can understand it? Well, let me put it this way. <clears throat> we need to know that Jeremiah 17.9 is not referring to the regenerated heart. Jeremiah is not referring to the heart of someone who is now a child of God. I take this from reading the New Testament Whenever the New Testament talks about the heart of a regenerated person, it speaks of the human heart in a very radical, different way from the way that Jeremiah talks about the heart. Look at Romans 5, 5. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Romans six seventeen. You were once slaves to sin, but you have now become obedient from the heart. Hebrews 10.22 Let us draw near with a true heart. That a heart can be true. Full of assurance. Full of faith. Washed clean. From evil conscience. 1 John 3.21 Beloved, if our hearts do not condemn us. There are seasons in your life where your heart does not condemn you. 
because your heart is walking with God. And so sitting here this morning, if you have repented of your sins, if you have made Jesus your Savior, there is goodness in your heart. Out of the sheer grace of God. But all that said, the heart is not perfect. The heart has been ruined by the plagues of sin. So contrary to what some Christians tell you, follow your heart, you must never do that. Every time you hear people say, follow your heart, tell them it's garbage. We're not to follow our hearts. Our heart is perverse. We can't follow our hearts. James 3.14 says, If you have bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast and be false to the truth. James 4.8 Cleanse your hearts, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. So the human heart has been ruined by sin and it needs careful guarding. It really does. So why do I need to guard it then? The reason we need to guard our heart is this. The human heart has been compromised and damaged. Your heart has become twisted by the ravages of sin. Jesus says it's the heart that churns out murder and adultery and stealing and lying and slander. So even though there is goodness in the regenerated heart, the default setting of the human heart is always evil. Always. I like the way John Flavel the Puritan writer puts it. He says, even if you have a gracious heart, you have to realize that in a matter of days, you will turn perverse again. And he compares the human heart with a finely tuned musical instrument. You so much as let it hang on the wall. Let's say you tune your guitar. You tune your guitar till it's finely tuned. And you hang on the wall for seven days, 14 days, you take it again, you play again on it, you need tuning again. It goes out of tune. And John Flavel says, no matter how gracious your human heart is, the default setting is one in which it is always out of tune with God. And that's the reason we need guarding. So let's let the text speak for itself, for why the heart needs guarding. It says it needs guarding because out of it, flows the springs of life. Can you imagine that out of your heart is constantly flowing things that rejuvenate you, that galvanizes you, that empowers you, that, that, that restores you, that gives you refreshment? We don't often think of our hearts this way, but just for a moment, if you could think of your heart as something that always rejuvenates you, for out of it flow the springs of life. Is an analogy of the arteries leading blood from the heart to all the extremities of the body. So the heart, in the same way, rejuvenates your mind, your emotions, your will by sending through all those places things that would nourish you. And so if your heart is clogged because you haven't guarded it, then several things happen. Here are just a list of those things that might happen. You suffer from physical exhaustion. You suffer from spiritual lethargy. You feel torn and confused. You overcommit your schedules. You live lives of frantic restlessness. Everything seems to become burdensome and laborious to you. 
you lose your perspective, you develop a spirit of defensiveness, you indulge in self-pity, you become actually petty, you whine over the smallest inconvenience. You are unclear what you are about and other people start to fill up your schedule for you. You confuse the urgent for the vital. You would rather perform a task than relate to a person. And finally you have this frightening capacity to even lie to yourselves. Now there are heaps more I could go on. I preached a series of sermon on that before. Some of you might remember. But these are some things that will happen if your heart is out of tune with God. And so it leaves you with pain. Because there are just too many balls in the air to juggle. And this is the reason why some people begin having affairs. Some people begin having affairs not for the sex. It's not really the sex. It's to take away, to numb the pain that's building up, that is always there. So, guarding our hearts has a way of affecting how we relate to one another. Because if we lose our heart's composure, we lose keeping ourselves together. But there is a second reason why we need to guard our hearts. And that's because God is constantly watching you and me. God is constantly, relentlessly looking at your heart. If you could see this in your eyes right now, God relentlessly looking into your heart, then you understand why there is a need to guard your heart. The Bible says in Genesis 2 that in the garden God tested Adam and Eve's heart. In Genesis 6, God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the human heart was only evil continually. And then 1 Samuel 13, with Saul disqualified, the Lord looked for a man whose heart is after his own heart. And 1 Kings, 14, 1 Kings 11, 4, when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart to other gods. And Second Chronicles 16.9, perhaps more famous than anyone else of those, the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro to look for a person whose heart is strong towards him, blameless towards him. Now if God is looking for someone like that, all the more, that is the reason why we should guard our hearts. Because God is looking. God is looking for a person whose heart will be pure like his. Will he find one? Has he found one? Yes. David came very close to be the one that God was looking for. Because David was a man after God's own heart. But even that, David failed quite miserably. Finally, there was only one to whom God says, This is the man of my own heart. I'm well pleased with him. Our Lord Jesus, truly, truly a man after God's own heart. More faithful than David, wiser than Solomon, and the Father took great delight in him. But God wants to look for that same heart in you and in me. And this is the reason why we've got to guard our hearts.
But I thought a lot about it this week and I found that there is a third reason for why we need to guard our hearts. Because the human heart can only take in so much and no more. So if you don't guard your heart, you'll be taking in excesses. You, you'll be taking in, you'll be drinking life in great gulps. And there will be stuff that you put in into your heart that necessarily has got to put other things out because the heart can only take so much and no more than that. So if you're taking excessively from the world, some things will be ejected out of your heart through the back door, so to speak, because the heart can only take so much. And that is the reason we should guard our hearts. Now for the third question, how then are we to guard our hearts? I want to go through this very quickly because it is really the practical aspects of it at the end that I want to close with. So very quickly, there are three ways to guard our hearts. Number one, keep it full. And I'm so glad that Vinay read 119 verse 9 to us. How can a young man stay pure in his path? In other words, how can a young man guard his heart? The psalmist says, by living according to your word. In other words, he's filling his heart with God's word. And he says in verse 11, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against thee. I memorized that verse as a very young man. Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Colossians 3.16 says pretty much the same thing. Let the word of God dwell in you richly. Larry Crabb used to say that bad passions are so strong because weak passions are so because good passions are so weak. I say that again, not from me, but from Larry Crabb. Bad passions are so strong because good passions are so weak. Now you and I know that nature hates a vacuum. Your heart hates a vacuum as well. If you don't fill your heart every day with the word of God the enemy will give you a hand but whenever he gives you a hand to help you fill your heart he fills it with deception with lies with accusations and a lot of us buy into that indiscriminately so number one first way to keep your heart first way to guard your heart keep it full second way keep it pure Philippians 4.8 Finally, brothers, whatsoever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, if there is any excellence, if there is any praise, think on these things. If I toy with stuff in my mind, sooner or later I become weak and I will succumb to the lure and to the seduction of the enemy. Galatians 6.7 says, Do not mock God is not mocked, rather. Whatever a person sows, that he will reap. So be careful to guard your heart by keeping it pure. Paul says, sow in the flesh and you will reap the actions of the flesh. Now that is not a threat. It is just this inviolable principle of the way things work. Garbage in, garbage out. It's just the way things work. Don't think for a moment that you can entertain some things in your mind without any danger to your, without endangering your soul. The sin that you harbor in your imagination assaults your soul. 
It sears your conscience and it poisons your heart in the end. You see, to stoke the mind with evil thoughts is to fan the flames of the devil. Jesus says, blessed are those who are pure in heart. And the writer of the Hebrew says, without holiness it is impossible for anyone to see God. So put to death whatever belongs to the evil nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed. Colossians 3.5 So God is saying here, deal with those things ruthlessly. Do not allow them breathing room. Choke the life out of them. Mortify them. So the second way to guard your heart, keep it pure. So number one, keep it full. Number two, keep it pure. Number three, keep it undivided. And I take this from Psalms 86, verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart. What a prayer. You and I should pray this prayer in the new year to come. Give me an undivided heart. That's a beautiful prayer to pray. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. Our hearts are far too divided. We want to worship God, but we want to worship the beast as well. We forget that we cannot serve two masters. We'll always be half-hearted. We'll always be rent apart. We'll always have conflicting loyalties. We'll always be hearing two voices. We need an undivided heart. And the Bible beautifully describes one man, David, as a man whose heart is after the heart of God. So to guard your heart, keep it full, keep it pure, keep it undivided. Now let me close now by showing you in a very practical way how one man guards his heart from morning to night. And as far as I understand it, he's still doing that. His name? Timothy Keller. When Keller was asked in an interview with Brian Chappelle how he guards his heart, he shares his strategy with the whole world. And this is what he says. And I want to quote him. I try to do petition in the morning and I try to do repentance in the evening. So I pray both mornings and even in the evenings. In the evenings, I look back to see what I did wrong and I repent. I pray in the morning and I pray this way, he says. Lord, make me happy enough in the grace of Jesus to avoid being proud, cold, scared and hooked. And in the middle of the day, I try to catch myself on all those four emotions. And I look for how I have been proud, I've been cold, I've been scared, and I've been hooked. And he goes on to say this. Proud means being too self-congratulatory. Maybe even becoming disdainful of people who are less successful than I am, he says. And I find myself being prideful in the middle of the day, he says. Cold means I'm too absorbed in my work. I'm too absorbed in my own concerns to be compassionate, to be gracious, to be warm, to be joyful to people around me. And I would catch myself in the middle of the day being cold, he says. Scared means I'm just far too anxious about my own self-image. 
I'm far too concerned about how I project myself, how I'm coming through. I'm too anxious, I'm too worried. And I catch myself in the middle of the day being far too scared. Finally, hooked means I find myself overworking and when I overwork, says Keller, I begin to eat. I begin to eat too much. I begin to eat things I shouldn't be eating just because it's a way of rewarding myself or looking at women twice. So proud, cold, scared, hooked. Now in the middle of the day, I get it out and I say, have I been proud, scared, cold, hooked in the last three hours? And Keller says, the answer usually is yes. And he calls this quick strikes on his idols at noon time, interestingly. And Keller goes on in that little interview to tell us how he brings the gospel to bear on these things that are penetrating his heart. It's a very simple thing to do. Firstly, he tells himself, I don't need to be proud because I'm at a place where I can best possibly be in God's plan, in God's scheme. I'm where I should be. Through His grace, by His mercy, I've nothing to be proud of. And then he gets himself to say, I don't need to be overly busy in such a way that I'm scared because I don't need to try to prove myself anymore. And in turn, I become cold to people. I don't need to do that. I can be warm towards people because I don't need to work so hard to prove myself. I've already been accepted by God. See how the gospel comes in? Jesus is our Savior, not our hard work. Thirdly, he says, I don't need to be afraid. I don't need to be anxious about anything at all because all the days of my life are found in his book even before one of them ever came to be. What have, what have I got to be afraid of? All my life is in his plan. And lastly, he says, I don't need to be hooked to gratify my appetite by looking at women, by eating too much, by indulging in sleeping more hours than I need. I don't need that because Jesus satisfies me fully. I don't need that. So I thought that was interesting that I should share this with you. Here's an example of one man. And I've, I've always thought that if any man can build a church in New York City, and he has built a very fine church in New York City, if anyone can build a church in New York City, it must be that his heart is so carefully guarded. And he has his heart guarded. And he still is careful to go on guarding his heart. And because he shared those things with us, I think we can take it away into the new year to be always careful that we're not proud, we're not scared, we're not hooked, and we're not cold. That is one good way of guarding our hearts. I want to close with John Flavel again, the Puritan writer. He says, the greatest difficulty before conversion is winning the heart for God. And the greatest difficulty after conversion is keeping the heart for God. I love that. I'll say that again. The greatest difficulty before conversion is winning the heart to God. And the greatest difficulty after conversion is keeping the heart for God.
So I want to pray for you. I want to pray that the new year will be a year in which you grow stout, strong roots, stand strong, stand tall, and be something for the kingdom of God. Shall we pray? Father, I want to pray for these ones before me. I want to pray that you guard their hearts from being proud, from being cold, from being scared, from being hooked. I pray that, Father, they will find Jesus to be their true Savior, that there will be nothing they, they need that they do not have, that they will make quick strikes on their idols before their idols make deep inroads into their lives. I pray that, Father, as a church, we will stand faithful, loyal. I pray that as a church in the year 2013, we will, be, we will be something to be reckoned with for your glory, for your honor. Take us, Father, to a place when 2013 comes to an end where we give you great glory and great praise. So, Lord, we ask your, your blessings upon Christ's sanctuary in the year to come. But for that, enable each one of us to guard our hearts, we ask. We pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.